This is Medieval Death Trip for Friday, July 27th, 2018, episode 53, concerning sucking up to patrons. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. Most noble lords and ladies, most gracious gentlemen and gentlewomen, most esteemed individuals who do not identify with a binary construction of gender, you honor me with the gift of your attention, bringing me with you during your commute, or while cooking a meal, or while washing the dishes after such a meal, or while on long walks, or while wiping the sweat from your brow at the gym. Far more precious than your time alone, itself a most valuable commodity, you permit me to hold the focus of your mind. Many indeed are they who would pay princely sums for but 60 seconds of that mental engagement. I I mean, I haven't heard from any of them myself, but I am assured by ancient authorities that they exist. But even if they had come to me, a poor friend indeed would I be to give away even a part of the priceless gift I have received from you. Okay, I can't keep that up, um, but it is the proper rhetorical mode to kick off our next run of episodes as I'm taking this occasion to announce that the show can now be supported via Patreon. You can find us at www.patreon.com slash mdtpodcast, and Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Now, before I get into the Patreon details, uh, just let me note that we do have a text for today uh, coming up, and this isn't just a fundraising announcement, so hang in there. If you listen to a lot of independently produced podcasts, or watch specialist content creators on YouTube, or read indie webcomics, or consume any of the many genres of handcrafted internet content out there, you're probably familiar with Patreon already. Um, But for those who might not be, Patreon is a crowdfunding platform specifically designed for giving people a way to provide ongoing support for an endeavor that they like which distinguishes it from its more famous cousin, Kickstarter, uh, which is more about prepaying for some hoped-for, deliverable product. For our Patreon, you would basically subscribe for a certain amount a month. It's essentially a pledged monthly donation, which you can cancel at any time. Patreon allows for all kinds of tiers of patronage that can unlock different benefits, uh, usually access to donor-only content or special recognition or other premiums, Um, But I'm going to keep it real simple. If you would like to support the show, there are two tiers, $1 a month and $5 a month. First, I should make it clear that the show itself is going to remain freely accessible to all. Donating is entirely optional. But if you do sign on as a donor, you will get special premiums. I've spent the past couple of months recording and editing a three-hour-long audiobook, under the medieval death trip label, as it were. This book is the Mirabilia Descripta, or Wonders of the East, by Jordanus, a French-born Dominican friar who served as Bishop of Columbum in India in the early 1300s. As the title suggests, this is his account of the amazing things he saw and heard about during his travels through the Middle East and India. Now, I should say that this is not the same Wonders of the East that has a copy included in the Codex that also contains the Beowulf manuscript, uh, which is famous for its descriptions of monstrous races and giant ants and things like that. Jordanus' account, while not lacking in legendary content, is much more realistic. 
It is a traveler's record, with its place in a tradition alongside Marco Polo and the great Muslim traveler Ibn Battuta. And this book is really a twofer, because it also contains an extensive commentary by its translator, Colonel Henry Yule, who made the translation in the 1860s and was himself a traveler in many of the same places in that time. He had served in the Royal Engineers in Bengal when it was under British rule, as well as being a scholar of geographical history and vice president of the Royal Geographic Society. Yule provides his commentary and footnotes that draw on his studies and his own experiences as an officer in India. His commentary ends up being a lot like the medieval authors. It's a bit of encyclopedic information mixed with personal anecdotes and stories he's heard from other colonials and from the local people and the book is comprised of at least as much commentary as there is medieval text. So as a 21st century audience, we get two remarkable primary sources in one. Two European views of India, one medieval and one Victorian. And if you donate at the $1 a month level, this is all in US dollars, you get access to this audiobook to download and listen to and keep right away. And my plan is to add a new audiobook for donors each year. So if you support us for a year, you could think of it as getting an audiobook for 12 bucks, as well as supporting the show, of course. If you donate at the $5 a month level, well, you get the audiobook. And you get the satisfaction of supporting the show at five times the level of other people. I kind of think $12 a year is a reasonable level to support a single show, but I say that as someone who spent about a decade as an impoverished student and am presently continuing that trend as an impoverished adjunct. If you are in the fortunate position that $5 a month is a negligible amount to you and you really like the show and want to help it, then I absolutely welcome your support. Uh, Maybe in the future, I'll think up something special I can do for top-tier patrons. Uh, Maybe a chance to vote on what the next audiobook will be or something like that. And if there's someone out there who really wants to give at a yet higher level, hey, send me an email or a tweet. Um, We can make that happen with a handful of keystrokes. And that brings us to our text for today, which is one of our medieval authors cozying up to a patron, attempting to flatter them by complaining about other patrons who haven't panned out. Our author is Gerald of Wales, a.k.a. Geraldus Cambrensis and we'll be hearing the two prefaces to his itinerary and description of Wales, um, probably his best-known work. To set the context for Gerald's rhetorical goals in these prefaces, uh, which are closer to dedications than prefaces in the modern sense, let's talk a little bit about medieval patronage of authors. We're in an interesting moment for literary patronage right now, because systems like Kickstarter and Patreon are reconceptualizing and reintroducing an older model of artistic support. There's a potted history of literary patronage that usually accompanies discussions of the revolutionary aspects of these platforms for writers and artists. Uh, This narrative is that in the pre-modern world, if you were a poet, you had to find a rich supporter who liked your work enough to pay you a living, and in compensation, you would usually sing that patron's praises in elaborate dedications or compose works that suited the patron's interests or flattered their family history, etc., etc. But the other consequence of this system was that since the patron, or a network of patrons, covered your living expenses, 
the work you actually produced went out more or less freely into the world for the world to do with as it pleased, not always to the pleasure of the poet, uh, but generally without permitting them much recourse. And for historians, hagiographers, and other writers of texts, much more so than for singers of tales or performers of lyrics, the reality was that their actual audience was a quite limited circle, comparatively speaking, um, due to the expenses in both labor and materials in producing copies of written manuscripts. This all changes, of course, with the introduction of the printing press and the rise of mass production of books. Now books can be produced more cheaply and easily, and a market for new books emerges that just wasn't there before. Now, instead of trying to court a handful of wealthy patrons, writers can offer their work to a whole marketplace of consumers. The text itself becomes a commodity to be bought and sold. The concept of copyright and intellectual property develops alongside the publishing industry as we know it today. And over a few centuries, the system comes to feel like just the natural order of things, the inevitable economics of literary production. But then the digital era hits, and suddenly the previously uncomplicated connection between the text as a commodity and the physical book as a consumer good with a price tag, that connection gets weird. Once you have an infinitely and essentially freely reproducible text in a digital file, then justifying the price tag for a product that you have ostensibly an infinite supply of becomes trickier, upsets all the long-standing formulae of supply and demand. And beyond that, simply maintaining control over the spread and availability of a text becomes nearly impossible with the ease of file sharing, and you basically have to rely on consumer ethics against copyright piracy in order to preserve the old system. In a world where the text is again becoming a freely distributed commodity that can't be as effectively contained to a commercial marketplace, it's not surprising that we would see a re-emergence of the model that existed before commercialization. Except that now we can bring in some of those mass market or democratic principles. These online patronage systems allow artists and creators to get support from a broad population of fans rather than a handful of wealthy benefactors. And the core relationship is shifted back to something closer, at least, to the idea of paying specifically to support the artists rather than paying for ownership of a product, you know, making a purchase which happens to have the side effect of supporting the artist, or, in many cases, supporting a publisher or a studio or a recording company that then trickles a little bit back down to the artists. So that's the narrative of maybe the commercial market for books, music, and video was actually just a historical aberration, and now we're shifting back to how most textual artists have made a livelihood for most of human history, uh, more or less, as I've heard it. And I thought that it was an interesting example of a kind of neo-medieval phenomenon. But the picture is not quite that tidy. I dug up a bunch of articles about patronage, mining the databases I have access to. I read early stuff. I read very recent scholarship. And what I can report is that I learned a lot about arts patronage in the Renaissance, and a bit about ancient Rome, all of which was fascinating but I only learned a little bit about literary patronage in the medieval period. And the general takeaway was that uh, there wasn't any? Or more accurately, that because the idea of authorship as a profession didn't really exist for most of the period, 
the forms of support for writers operated in a system somewhat removed from what art historians in particular tend to classify as patronage. The poets who actually received more conventional patronage in the form of financial support were bards and scalds and singers. We don't have a whole lot of fine-grained documentation for this patronage. I mean, really, you're looking at an entry in an accounts book that such-and-such amount was paid to entertainers at the Christmas feast. Or you have literary texts or sagas that record a king giving a scald a ring in recognition of a particularly fine poem, uh, or other examples like that. Where we do see poets soliciting money, it's either very early sources or rather late ones. 10th century or late 14th, early 15th century. And yet, in the high Middle Ages between these two periods, we have all these dedications attached to our chronicles and our poetic epics and mirrors for princes and everything else, all these cries for favor and recognition, appeals to patrons, or so it sure seems to me. So what are these authors after? Now, as I said, the closer you get to 1400 or so, the more likely you do find authors basically soliciting financial support in a traditional patronage form. Uh, the age of Chaucer and his contemporaries is when becoming a professional person of letters, and not just a professional court performer, is becoming a possibility in a way it hadn't been in Europe since the Roman Empire. But someone like Gerald of Wales, writing in the late 11, early 1200s, they aren't there yet. But nonetheless, they're writing these elaborate appeals. Now, because I didn't get my hands on any article that really dug into this, I'm going to engage in my own speculation about what's going on. I feel pretty good about it, but take it with a grain of salt. Okay, an author like Gerald, like most of our authors, Simeon of Durham, Thomas of Monmouth, William of Malmesbury, Orderic Vitalis, Walter Mapp, they are employed as churchmen. They either receive room and board as monks, or they hold church offices that provide a reliable income. Often they are writing as part of their clerical duties, especially the monks, but some of them are writing in their spare time. They don't really need money from patrons to support their living expenses, to pay rent or buy food. Their church or monastery might well take in such endowments, but the individual monk or clerk doesn't need a noble patron to pay them for a piece of writing. But they do need the materials of production to be paid for. Vellum isn't cheap. Inks and gold leaf for illuminations, if anyone be so bold to dream of such a thing for their own work. Uh, those aren't cheap. Binding materials can get quite costly. But usually, the writer doesn't have to solicit these specifically. More often, a fancy production of a manuscript would be commissioned by a patron, just as they might commission a stained glass window or a sculpture. So, to the degree that a writer might curry favor with a patron, it might be to get them to lavish such expenditure on a presentation copy, so to speak, of one of their own texts. But those are going to be rare cases. With more modest manuscripts, well, you still have to imagine that there's a finite supply of vellum and labor in the scriptorium. If the abbot is trying to decide whether to use some of that on a new in-house history or on a fresh copy of Augustine's famous and popular ecclesiastical history, it helps if the historian has an influential noble friend who can go to the abbot and say, you know, I'm really looking forward to seeing the continuation of that history of England by your monk William. The patron might not be directly paying for production, but can use social capital, as it were, to change priorities of production to benefit the writer. 
And I think that really is the key. That's the dominant motif you see in these early and high medieval dedications. They don't beg for money and land. They want friendship and recognition of value. And I don't think that these calls for friendship are just euphemisms for the possibility of getting money and land. They want fame. They want someone who will be out there saying, this person is doing good work. They should be allowed and encouraged to do more of it. So for this kind of medieval patronage, the modern parallel really isn't support us on Patreon. It's more rate and review us, like and subscribe. These are patrons not as investors, but as influencers in our modern social media sense. Which isn't to say that there doesn't sometimes creep in an undercurrent of material reward for work well done, but I don't think that's the primary goal for these medieval long-form writers. Unlike a Renaissance or Romantic poet hitting up their noble friends and old schoolmates for a bit of cash so that worldly demands won't get between them and their muse. Nonetheless, as you hear Gerald complain about the state of poets in this fallen age and seek the favor of Stephen Langton, Archbishop of Canterbury, in the contentious reign of King John, you might note how his emphasis is on status and esteem. We have plenty of begging letters from the Middle Ages, students writing home to their parents for additional funds, abbots begging bishops or princes for resources for construction projects or basic provisions, There is a well-established rhetoric for attesting to one's poverty and flattering a potential source of money. And while Gerald deploys similar formulae, he's never talking about his material living conditions or debts. He remains focused on his social conditions and the prestige afforded to writers in their works. If there's a place where he breaks with the formula, it's in an almost startling lack of humility. There are a couple of points where he references Langton's ability to bestow gifts and benefits, so maybe I'm being naive, and it really is all just coded language for send me a check, please. Um, But that's just not what I'm getting. Anyway, let's hear from Gerald now, and you can make your own judgments about his intentions. As I mentioned, these are the first and second prefaces to his Itinerary Through Wales, written originally in 1191, but these dedications come from a later recension of the text from around 1214, uh, Langton not having been appointed archbishop until 1207, and then being exiled from England for a while until 1213 as a consequence of his conflict with King John. So we're seeing Gerald not just trying to get support for further writing, but also trying to get recognition for older work that he feels has been underrated by earlier patrons. And in doing so, he plays on the partisanship between the archdiocese and the crown. I'll be reading from the translation by Richard Colt Hoare, which was published in the Everyman's Library in 1908. Hoare leaves some of the classical Latin quotations untranslated, Uh, So I've subbed in translations of Virgil and others by Lewis Thorpe, where necessary. First Preface To Stephen Langton, Archbishop of Canterbury As the times are affected by the changes of circumstances, so are the minds of men influenced by different manners and customs. The satirist Perseus exclaims, A thousand kinds of men, each differing in desire, each has his own intent, each burns with different fire. The comic poet also says, As many men, so many minds, each has his way. 
Young soldiers exult in war, and pleaders delight in the gown. Others aspire after riches and think them the supreme good. Some approve Galen, some Justinian. Those who are desirous of honors follow the court, and from their ambitious pursuits meet with more mortification than satisfaction. Some, indeed, but very few, take pleasure in the liberal arts, amongst whom we cannot but admire logicians, who, when they have made only a trifling progress, are as much enchanted with the images of dialectics as if they were listening to the songs of the sirens. But among so many species of men, where are to be found divine poets? Where the noble asserters of morals? Where the masters of the Latin tongue? Who in the present times displays lettered eloquence, either in history or poetry? Who, I say, in our age either builds a system of ethics or consigns illustrious actions to immortality? Literary fame, which used to be placed in the highest rank, is now, because of the depravity of the times, tending to ruin and degraded to the lowest, so that persons attached to study are at present not only not imitated nor venerated, but even detested. Happy indeed would be the arts, observes Fabius, if artists alone judged of the arts. But, as Sidonius says, it is a fixed principle in the human mind that they who are ignorant of the arts despise the artist. But to revert to our subject. Which, I ask, have rendered more service to the world, the arms of Marius or the verses of Virgil? The sword of Marius has rusted, while the fame of him who wrote the Aeneid is immortal, and although in his time letters were honored by lettered persons, yet from his own pen we find, quote, Faced with the war god's weapons, our songs are no more strong than the doves of Jove's Dodona, which the north wind blows along. Who would hesitate in deciding which are more profitable, the works of St. Jerome or the riches of Croesus? But where now shine the gold and silver of Croesus, whilst the world is instructed by the example and enlightened by the learning of the poor Cenobite? Yet even he, through envy, suffered stripes and contumely at Rome, although his character was so illustrious, and at length, being driven beyond the seas, found a refuge for his studies in the solitude of Bethlehem. Thus it appears that gold and arms may support us in this life, but avail nothing after death, and that letters through envy profit nothing in this world, but, like a testament, acquire an immortal value from the seal of death. According to the poet, so envy feeds on the living, but after our death it dies down. Only then can the honor we merit keep fresh our fame and renown. And also, though jealousy still spreads o'er me its melancholy pall, once dead I shall be honored, envy like night must fall. Those who by artifice endeavor to acquire or preserve the reputation of abilities or ingenuity, while they abound in the words of others, have little cause to boast of their own inventions. For the composers of that polished language, in which such various cases as occur in the great body of law are treated with such an appropriate elegance of style, must stand ever forward in the first ranks of praise. I should indeed have said that the authors of refined language, not the hearers only, the inventors, not the reciters, are most worthy of commendation. You will find, however, that the practices of the court and of the schools are extremely similar, 
as well in the subtleties they employ to lead you forward as in the steadiness with which they generally maintain their own positions. Yet, it is certain that the knowledge of logic, the acumen, if I may so express it, of all other sciences as well as arts, is very useful when restricted within proper bounds, whilst the court, i.e. courtly language, excepting to sycophants or ambitious men, is by no means necessary. For if you are successful at court, ambition never wholly quits its hold till satiated, and allures and draws you still closer. But if your labor is thrown away, you still continue the pursuit, and together with your substance, lose your time, the greatest and most irretrievable of all losses. There is likewise some resemblance between the court and the game of dice, as the poet observes. The coaxing dice attract the gambler's greedy hand. He may not have lost already, but he loses in the end. Which, by substituting the word curia for alia, may be applied to the court. This further proof of their resemblance may be added, that as the chances of the dice and court are not productive of any real delight, so they are equally distributed to the worthy and the unworthy. Since, therefore, among so many species of men, each follows his own inclination, and each is actuated by different desires, a regard for posterity has induced me to choose the study of composition. And, as this life is temporary and mutable, it is grateful to live in the memory of future ages, and to be immortalized by fame. For to toil after that which produces envy in life, but glory after death, is a sure indication of an elevated mind. Poets and authors indeed aspire after immortality, but do not reject any present advantages that may offer. I formerly completed, with vain and fruitless labor, the topography of Ireland for King Henry II and its companion, the vaticinal history, for Richard of Poitou, his son, and, I wish I were not compelled to add, his successor in vice. Princes little skilled in letters and much engaged in business. To you, illustrious Stephen, Archbishop of Canterbury, equally commendable for your learning and religion, I now dedicate the account of our meritorious journey through the rugged provinces of Cambria, written in a scholastic style and divided into two parts. For as virtue loves itself and detests what is contrary to it, so I hope you will consider whatever I may have written in commendation of your late venerable and eminent predecessor with no less affection than if it related to yourself. To you also, when completed, I destine my treatise on the instruction of a prince, if, amidst your religious and worldly occupations, you can find leisure for the perusal of it. For I purpose to submit these and other fruits of my diligence to be tasted by you at your discretion, each in its proper order, hoping that, if my larger undertakings do not excite your interests, my smaller works may at least merit your approbation, conciliate your favor, and call forth my gratitude towards you, who, unmindful of worldly affections, do not partially distribute your bounties to your family and friends, but to letters and merit. You, who in the midst of such great and unceasing contests between the crown and the priesthood, stand forth almost singly the firm and faithful friend of the British Church. You, who, almost the only one duly elected, fulfill the scriptural designation of the Episcopal character. It is not, however, by bearing a cap, 
by placing a cushion, by shielding off the rain, or by wiping the dust, even if there should be none, in the midst of a herd of flatterers that I attempt to conciliate your favor, but by my writings. To you, therefore, rare, noble, and illustrious man, on whom nature and art have showered down whatever becomes your supereminent situation, I dedicate my works. But if I fail in this mode of conciliating your favor, and if your prayers and avocations should not allow you sufficient time to read them, I shall consider the honor of letters as vanished, and in hope of its revival, I shall inscribe my writings to posterity. Second Preface To the Same Prelate Since those things which are known to have been done through a laudable devotion are not unworthily extolled with due praises, and since the mind, when relaxed, loses its energy, and the torpor of sloth innervates the understanding, as iron acquires rust for want of use, and stagnant waters become foul, lest my pen should be injured by the rust of idleness, I have thought good to commit to writing the devout visitation which Baldwin, Archbishop of Canterbury, made throughout Wales, and to hand down, as it were in a mirror, through you, illustrious Stephen, to posterity, the difficult places through which we passed, the names of springs and torrents, the witty sayings, the toils and incidents of the journey, the memorable events of ancient and modern times, and the natural history and descriptions of the country, lest my study should perish through idleness, or the praise of these things be lost by silence. So, again, we see Gerald putting Stephen Langton less in the position of a wealthy patron holding the purse strings, and more in the position of a reviewer, whose thumbs up or thumbs down could make or break a career. I, too, certainly appreciate, and indeed the show needs, your positive reviews on the various podcasting platforms that have reviews, especially iTunes slash Apple Podcasts, and boy, is that distinction starting to get irritatingly confusing. One day, I'd love to be like a medieval monk, contentedly snuggled away in a tenured professorship where my livelihood is largely covered by the institution I belong to, and my work on the show can just be part of my service to the larger academic mission. But that day is stubbornly refusing to arrive, it seems, and I could use the support of a network of patrons. If you choose to donate to the show, you're going to help me cover my web hosting costs, maybe even to upgrade my service so that downloads are faster and the site doesn't go down every episode release day due to the high volume of wonderful traffic all of you are creating. It would be nice to have some backup equipment so that I won't be knocked out by a microphone or hard drive failure. There are some soundproofing things I could get that would make it possible to do recordings earlier than 10 or 11 o'clock at night, which is my current situation, and one of the reasons why it sometimes takes a while to get an episode out. Uh, often I find that my mind and or my voice is shot by 11 p.m. So I can candidly say that your support will actually help improve the quality of the show and make the production of more episodes possible. And that concludes my plea of poverty. So I hope you'll consider supporting us. Once again, you can find our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash mdtpodcast, same as our Twitter handle. 
And even if you're not ready to donate, you can still go there to read the medieval begging letter I wrote for our Patreon pitch, uh, which is modeled off of authentic medieval sources. To close out this episode, I thought I'd share a little bit I learned about the phrase in our title, sucking up to patrons. Suck comes from the Old English verb sukan. The origins are a little hard to trace. There seems to be a common Germanic root, since you see very similar words in Old Norse and Old High German, but you also have a Latin cognate, sugera, and there are also cognates in Celtic languages, Welsh and Old Irish. Despite my enthusiasm for etymology, I am not a trained linguist. My untrained hypothesis would have been that there must be a common Indo-European root that all these later local forms derive from, but none of the dictionaries I consulted proposed an Indo-European root, and they usually do when there's thought to be one. So I'm not sure what's up with this, though the online etymological dictionary mentions the idea that it is a mimetic or onomatopoetic word. It imitates the sound of sucking, and that explains the similarity across languages. Origins aside, it's a very old word in English. Interestingly, in Old English, the word appears to be overwhelmingly used in the context of nursing. It really is quite narrowly employed. I was thinking about this, and in a world without straws or rubber tubing or things that we might apply suction to today, is sucking perhaps actually a rather rare activity, setting aside slurping at the edge of a cup or bowl? I don't think that can be right. Uh, I think there was probably plenty of sucking going on, but the word does seem to have been very strongly focused on the action of an infant. It starts to broaden out in Middle English and takes on more figurative uses, and it really expands in Early Modern English when you also have the development of all sorts of new technologies, pumps and things that create suction, a word that comes into English in the 17th century. As a metaphorical description of behavior, the phrase suck up is interesting. Most applications of suck are negative. They draw on parasitic imagery. Often what one sucks from a person is their money. To suck someone and to bleed someone are synonymous. From this usage, you see phrases using suck to describe seeking handouts or currying favor with powerful people. In other words, to be a sycophant. And presumably from this, you start to see in the mid-1800s the phrase suck up to in the meaning we have today, or as Houghton's Dictionary of Slang from 1860 puts it, to insinuate oneself into a person's good graces. This evolution also means we get two very different meanings of the word sucker, though only one seems to persist in the present day. On the one hand, in early modern English, a sucker is one who sucks up, they are the sycophant, the leech, the grifter. But in North America in the 19th century, our current sucker emerges, meaning chump, or one who might be exploited by suck-ups and grifters. How do we wind up with nearly the opposite meaning? Well, by going back to the basics. The earliest example of sucker in this sense meant greenhorn, or novice in a trade, shading quickly over into one who is just generally naive and innocent. And they are suckers because they are infantile. They are like babies, inexperienced. Greenhorn uses the same kind of metaphor of immaturity. And this very quickly comes to mean not just inexperienced, but gullible. Not just a rustic, but a rube. Which leaves us with the question of sexual innuendo. 
Well, surprisingly, the sexual meaning isn't recorded until the 1920s by slang dictionaries. That doesn't prove it wasn't in usage well before then, but it's still later than I might have guessed. The phrase, suck eggs, is recorded in 1906, but is not considered to have sexual connotations. This all leads us nicely to our riddle, though. Our riddle from last time was, I haunt all pale the waters of foul fens. Fortune has fashioned me a bloody name, for greedy gulps of red blood are my fare. No bones or feet or arms at all have I, yet bite with three forked wounds unlucky men, and by health-bringing lips thus conquer care. This is a riddle of Aldhelm, and it happens to be a pretty literal one. This is not some obscure metaphor being deployed. What lives in marshy water, drinks blood, has three teeth or hooks in its sucker, and is used in medicine? The answer is, of course, a leech. Yeah, right, I'm not falling for that one, the chance. No, Vern, there is something on your neck. To leech. Leeches! Oh my god! As we start up a new run of episodes here at the end of the summer, I'm going to change up how we do the riddle and mystery word to try to give myself a bit more flexibility in production, uh, which should also help keep episodes flowing more steadily. I'm going to let these be self-contained features at the end of each episode. Uh, I'll try to tweet them out maybe a few days before release for anyone who does like the playing along aspect, but for now, we'll both get and answer our various puzzles in the same episode uh, without a preview on the episode before. So stay tuned for next time, when we will have a new mystery word to explore. Until then, you can interact with me on Twitter, at MDTPodcast, or by email sent to patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com, And you can visit MedievalDeathTrip.com to get more information about the show, including references for every episode. And so, gentle benefactors, most gracious and charitable listeners, I hope to see your names appearing on our Patreon rolls, and I hope you enjoy the Jordanus audiobook. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening.